everyone. Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of this year, Athletics Media Podcast. Uh, your host for this new podcast will be myself, Calvin, Calvin Reed. I'm a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. Francis C. Harris, who's sitting right across from me, and his brother Charles F. Harris Jr., also sitting uh, across from me. Uh, good to see you guys. Thank good you. afternoon. Thank um, you. Um, we are going to, uh, for this show and uh, for coming shows, we're going to be talking about the history of the black athlete uh, in, in America, and all of this is going to be based on uh, the pictorial history of the African-American athlete, a, a really um, comprehensive and heroically produced uh, reference work on the, the African-American athlete by my co-host. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump across to them and let them talk a little bit about what is the pictorial history of the African-American athlete. I'm going to start with Francis. Well, the pictorial history of the African-American athlete is a four-volume series, uh, two collegiate volumes, two professional volumes, about 680 pages apiece, uh, 2,000, 2, excuse me, 500 photographs mm. in each volume. Uh, collegiate volume one is from the late 1800s to 1945, and uh, it has 31 historically black colleges and universities in it, and 34 major colleges and universities in it. And the criteria that my brother and I have chosen is the first African American to at each major college and university uh, any athlete that's been chosen all conference all American or is in the university's Hall of Fame or the first African American to participate in any sport as far as the historically black colleges and universities there as I said there are 31 and they're in the order of each university and college was founded. Mm -hmm. And then the remaining 34 major colleges and universities are in alphabetical mm -hmm. order. Let me just jump in for a second. I'm kind of curious. For our listeners who may not be aware of the great educational and athletic tradition of the historically black college um, network, tell us a, a little bit about, and I should also jump in to add that this podcast is going to be about, you know, the African-American um, athlete. But, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of information about um, uh, black college sports in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. um, professional sports. And because we've all shared a background both in Washington, D.C. Uh, and at Howard University. So uh, speaking of uh, a historically black college. So tell us, uh, for fans who may not know um, what a black the black college tradition is, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. Well... This was also during segregation. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to, I'd say, 1946, uh, the majority of, and afterwards also, the majority of African Americans in this country went to historically black colleges mm -hmm. and universities. And uh, basically, the major colleges in each state, like in Virginia, you had Norfolk State, you had Hampton, you okay. had Virginia mm -hmm. State. Uh, these uh, African Americans couldn't go to say the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. couldn't go to William and Mary, couldn't go to the University of Richmond. So the historically black colleges and universities have always been premier, uh, while I would say it's coming back to that, but at that 
particular time in our history of this country, they were the premier places where African Americans went and were educated. Yeah. And that's across uh, 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 agriculture, that's mm -hmm. uh, in medicine, and what mm -hmm. have you. Uh, well, Howard was mm -hmm. probably the premier medical school, sure. uh, mm -hmm. other than Meharry, yes, in sure. um, Tennessee. But uh, so the history, the athletic history, really goes uh, before uh, the 1900s. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's been established. And of course, all of these colleges, uh, as all American colleges do, they, uh, the athletics have become a big part of mm -hmm. both student body life and representing the university to the larger world. Mm -hmm. And that was no different in uh, African-American colleges, uh, like the one that we went to. <laughs> also part, and in, in part of this history also, we'll talk about uh, the conferences mm -hmm. that were developed that's right. to support their athletics. That's, that's right. I yeah. mean, you had at the uh, Tennessee State University, mm -hmm. you had the president, Dr. Walter Struthers Davis, who always preached, he became the president in 1933, and he always preached that he wanted to live long enough to see Tennessee State University play the University of Tennessee. You know, and so that was the gauge in terms of creating these sports programs at schools mm -hmm. like Tennessee State University to compete against the major, major college and mm -hmm. universities. So. Well, you know, and this is something I don't know, uh, what is the earliest black athletic conference? I would say the, the Colored Intercollegiate Athletic uh, Association, mm -hmm. which is now the CIAA. The CIAA, sure. Yes. And we're going to talk about that a little <laughs> bit in our next segment uh, because we're also going to talk about one of the great um, you know, pioneers of black athletics. Uh, we're going to go back and talk about that in our next segment where we talk about Edwin Bancroft Henderson. Mm -hmm. So, But we're going to save that for now. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about the pictorial history of African-American athletes. Yes, my brother and I first got the contract to do this books, these books in 1993, and it evolved. I mean, it was one book, but the, uh, so much information came from all these colleges and universities that it spotted into two books. And then we had so much information that it became three and then four books. Mm -hmm. So uh, we used the criteria to say, all right, the late 1800s to 1945. Mm -hmm. So you had 34 major, you had the 31 historically black colleges and universities, and then you had the 34 major colleges and universities. And then the next uh, book, Collegiate Volume 2, was 1946 to the present. And the first African American at these universities, uh, basically the South and the Southwest, mm -hmm. it began in 1946. So then you have close to 96 colleges, major colleges and universities that are in collegiate volume two. The major schools that we all know yeah, from college know, athletics. University of Alabama, sure. mm -hmm. University of Georgia, mm -hmm. uh, Georgetown University, mm -hmm. uh, those schools mm -hmm. like the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. So, and as these colleges integrated, obviously, yes. the black athletes followed quickly behind. Well, yes, and I, I believe that the civil rights mm -hmm. movement definitely played a role in that. And so uh, as the late 1950s and the 1960s came about, mm -hmm. you had a lot of African Americans now. They were still going to historically black colleges and universities, but now they could go to these major sure. colleges either in the South and what have you. So that's where Collegiate Volume 2 
uh, takes us in there. And so there's quite a lot of information um, in as in all both uh, collegiate volumes. Mm -hmm. And then we have the uh, professional volumes three and four. And you know we um, talk about African American athletic participation in baseball, football, mm -hmm. basketball, uh, boxing, track and field, Olympics, tennis, horse racing, cycling, hockey, and gymnastics. Mm -hmm. All right, so you covered all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, as I said. 2,500 photographs, about 680 mm -hmm. pages in each volume. So there's a lot of ground to be, you know. Covered. Absolutely, and then we're going to try and cover it in this podcast <laughs> over over the the coming weeks and months. Um, so, but now just to make sure that we understand it, that this is a work that's fundamentally complete, mm -hmm. but that that is not published yet. No. But it will be it will be shortly, or at least that's our plan. Yes, sir. Um, uh, and and also that's constantly being updated as yes. new developments mm -hmm. uh, take place in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to jump very quickly to, uh, this started in 1993 mm -hmm. uh, with a book deal from Amistad Press. That's right. And uh, for those of you out there who don't know, Amistad Press is probably the the oldest black independent mainstream publishing house in the country, mm -hmm. started by your dad, yes. uh, and who uh, was a mentor, I felt to me, when I first got into the book publishing industry back in the uh, mid-1980s. So um, let's, I think we need to talk a little bit about Charles Harris Sr. Yes, we definitely do. I mean, I don't think yeah. this book would be possible yeah. without him. Uh, my father was born in Portsmouth, Virginia uh, in 1934. He's the youngest of seven children. And uh, he came to journalism and the whole written world because the family delivered uh, newspapers in Portsmouth for close to uh -huh. 30 years. So he was a newspaper boy, and my entire uh, family, my grandparents and my uncles and aunt delivered papers. So uh -huh. he had to read the newspaper almost every day. That was part of his thing. And then so print and publishing, that's it, it that came naturally. Of course. And, and at the end of the day, uh, they would sit around the dinner table and discuss the issues of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how he came into that. And he went to I.C. Norcom High School in Portsmouth, Virginia, which is a very well-known high school in the Tidewater area. And basically, it was Norcom and Booker T. Washington in Norfolk, uh, in that particular area. And so after going to high school, graduating, he went to uh, Norfolk State College, uh, which is now Norfolk State University. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, it was a two-year uh, college. And uh, he went there, and that's where he also met my mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, after two years, they matriculated to Virginia State University in Petersburg. Uh, graduated with a BA degree in 1955, served in the, as a second lieutenant in mm -hmm. the Army, and then made his way to New York, where he was yeah. hired at Doubleday uh, as a research assistant. Mm -hmm. When I was born, he was a research assistant yeah. at Doubleday, and he worked himself up to an acquiring editor. Uh, and it was, he was the first black mm -hmm. to be an editor uh, in the publishing world yeah. at that time. There, there just weren't any. And he uh, acquired works from people like John O. Franklin, mm -hmm. Emancipation Proclamation, mm -hmm. Rayford Logan. Mm -hmm. uh, around 1965, he developed the Zenith series. He had two books, um, The Glorious Age in Africa, 
and worth fighting for. Worth fighting for was later basically made into a film called Glory. Oh, okay. You know, and uh, he also uh, acquired. You uh, mean? Do you mean the the, the Denzel film? Washington film? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's a terrific movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was based yeah, on yeah. that particular book. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Very so, good. Yeah. So, uh, and then he also acquired uh, the Off My Chess, which was by Jim Brown and Myron Cohen uh-huh. at mm-hmm. that particular time. Uh, he left Doubleday in 1965, and he was a vice president and general manager at Portal Press at John Wiley and mm-hmm. Sons. And then in 1969, he moved to Random House, and with John A. Williams, he launched the novelist. Yes, mm-hmm. he launched uh, Amistad, a uh, book-length uh, periodical. Named um, after the great slave mutiny. Yeah, of course, uh, of course. Yes, yes okay. But, led by Joseph Sinkin. Yes. And so uh, they published two issues in 1970 and 1971. And I should say, yeah, because you're talking about Amistad uh, Periodical, though it was in a book format. It was a journal. And I remember from my college day, well, really not my college days, (laughs) because I was was later than that, but I do remember one of the earliest things of noting this Mm. journal in book format. That's right. That's right. And uh, he also uh, purchased the works of uh, Addison Gale and Langston Hughes Mm -hmm. and at Random House, and also he was a, a, a principal, the principal person that acquired uh, The Greatest. By mm. Yes, and, uh, yeah, his bio- yes. biography, yes. yes. So and, uh, after working at Random House in 1971, he founded and directed Howard University Press in Washington, D.C., and that was the first black university press yes. uh, in the country. And, uh, they and that really is my first encounter with the expertise of your father because I was a student at Howard University mm-hmm. and knew about the Howard University Press mm-hmm. at the time so mm-hmm. this is just as has I my intersection with <laughs> with your orbit you know even though we didn't get to know each other mm-hmm. until many years later mm-hmm. and uh, Howard University Press published a poetic equation a um, conversation between Margaret Walker and Nikki Giovanni uh, and uh, several other books. He also, in 1980, uh, launched the Howard University Book Publishing Institute. And it was a program designed to train uh, African Americans to get into publishing. Uh, and some of those people uh, later got into publishing, like Malika Darrow. And, yeah, uh, sure, yeah. In fact, Malika was one of the first people, also one of the first people mm-hmm. I met. Mm-hmm. Um, when Amistad, I mean, your dad had some very innovative co-partnership deals, mm-hmm. and Amistad at one point was partnered with Warner Books, as mm-hmm. I recall, and mm-hmm. I think it was in the offices were at at um, at Warner. Yes, that's right. Because uh, that's one of the first times I went up and met him, and met. In fact, I think it's the first time I met Malika mm-hmm. yes. was when she was working for uh, for Charles. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, nineteen eighty six is when he launched Amistad Press mm-hmm. in New York, and. That was a venture that was a, a commercial publishing venture mm-hmm. with Time Warner, and my brother worked for my father quite closely. Yes. So I think he most he can explain more about the inner workings of Amistad because he worked so close to him. Yes. So Charles Jr. Well, Amistad <laughs> Press was uh, launched in '86, as Francis has said. Uh, it was a partnership with Time Warner. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, also, um, we had the luxury of being distributed by Penguin mm-hmm. as well. 
Um, and um, it was the first independently large-scale African-American-owned general trade book publisher uh, in the country at that time. Mm -hmm. um, some of the first works, uh, of course, Arthur Ashe, uh, the tennis great, was an investor in Amistad Press. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the titles that, uh, well, Francis had the luxury of working as an, a research assistant on this title was A Hard Road to Glory, mm -hmm, which sure. was a three-volume uh, sports history about the African-American athlete. Uh, one of the first ones that's told at its time, uh, which Francis had the luxury of working on, uh, that was by Arthur Ashe, and it uh, came in three different volumes. Um, another title that uh, my father published at this time as well was uh, Succeeding Against the Odds, which was by Ebony and Jet Magazine publisher John H. Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, that came out in uh, 87. Uh, following that book was, uh, I think a little bit later on, was uh, Just Permanent Interest by William L. Clay, mm -hmm. um, which was a history of African Americans in the government. Um, published by Congressman Clay. Also at this time, um, we were able to publish um, The Rise, The Fall, and The Recovery by Spencer Haywood, which was the autobiography oh, mm -hmm. of the Hall of Fame great Spencer Haywood uh, through his trials and tribulations of growing up and then playing in the NBA, uh, winning a gold medal as well. Um, after this, uh, my father had the luxury of publishing a title by uh, Essence editor Susan Taylor called In the Spirit. That was followed by uh, uh, um, Donald Bogle's mm -hmm. uh, uh, biography of Dorothy Dandridge. Also at this time, uh, my father had the luxury of publishing uh, books by Barbara Summers uh, one in particular was called Nouvelle Soul. Mm -hmm. Another one was called uh, The Price You Pay. And uh, another one which was a uh, launching of the history of African-American models called Skin Deep. Uh, and that was a fantastic pictorial uh, that had never been told before about the history of African-American models. Um, also, uh, Amistad, another one of Amistad's titles also was the Amistad Literary Series, which was a series of critical volumes by well-known authors such as Zora Neale Hurston, Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, Alice Walker, and Toni Morrison. Um, later on, uh, my father sold Amistad Press to HarperCollins in 1999. Um, which he then became the editorial director of the imprint when it was sold yeah. to HarperCollins. So that was just a little brief history of my father with the Amistad Press and its titles as well. And he passed away in 2016? No, 2015. 2015. December 2015. Well, I mean, just really briefly, I mean, I met Charles early in my publishing career, really was an inspiration to me. Uh, really, if you, he was like a publishing out of central casting. I mean, if there were black publishers, <laughs> uh, but he set the mold for it. Um, uh, his publishing history is really extraordinary. The books that he released. Um, uh, so you're getting a little bit of black history, black history, uh, black athletic history. You're only getting a little bit of black publishing history exactly. here too. Uh, okay, very quickly now we're going to segue into uh, another segment. 
that will talk a little bit about something we mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. just uh, really the rise of black uh, 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 collegiate and leading the way to black professionalism. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to a, uh, really about a pioneering figure in African-American athletics. And, uh, and one of the things that this podcast, I think, will address, I mean, I'm a sports junkie and I'm a Washington, D.C. guy and I had never heard of this guy. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's embarrassing and inspirational that, that you guys, you, I mean, you know this stuff backwards and forwards. So we're going to talk about Edward Bancroft Henderson. So tell us, who, who is he? <laughs> well, I think Edward Bancroft Henderson is the father of African-American mm-hmm. athletes, um, athletics. Uh, he went to what is the minor normal school, which later became the M Street School in Washington, D.C. What, what years are we talking about We're here? talking about the early 1900s. Yeah. He was born in like 1883. Yes, mm-hmm. he was born in 1883. Uh, he graduated from the minor normal school, and um, then he, uh, uh, summers he studied at the Harvard University School of Physical Edu- Education Training. And uh, he was taught by Dr. Dudley Sargent there. And uh, Dr. Sargent was a renowned founder of Hygienic Institute of Physical Culture in New York City. And he was ahead of his times in terms of uh, lifting weights to Mm -hmm. improve your uh, body and what have you. And also, he was a a close friend of James A. Naismith, the inventor of uh, the game of basketball. And uh, Dr. Sargent had James Naismith introduce the game to um, Edward Bancroft Mm -hmm. Henderson when he was attending it. When he was at Howard, yeah, Harvard, Harvard, excuse me. Yes, mm-hmm. and so uh, Dr. Henderson brought the game of basketball to Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became the athletic director of the black high schools, which mm-hmm. were only four or five at that particular time in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. And uh, he basically played for the uh, 12th Street YMCA team. Well, let me get this straight. Now, not only was he um, obviously a... Uh, a professor and, and a teacher mm-hmm. of athletics. He was an athlete himself. Yes, he was an athlete himself. And I, as I said, he played with that 12th Street YMCA team. Mm-hmm. And some of the first uh, athletes that played for Har- Howard University's basketball mm-hmm. team were also on that team. So Dr. Henderson, uh, I like to refer to him as Dr. Sin, played mm-hmm. basketball and then he introduced the game. You know, they only had one physical education director for the black high schools in Washington mm-hmm. at that time. So he would go to Armstrong, he would go mm-hmm. to the entry school, which later mm-hmm. became Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School. Which is, of course, is a um, um, an iconic name in high schools in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yes. uh, my mother went to uh, Dunbar High School mm-hmm. uh, many, many years ago, mm-hmm. but Dunbar was the creme de la creme, <laughs> <laughs> or so the people who went to Dunbar will tell you. Mm-hmm. But no, it really is an extraordinary time in the educational, public education in D.C. That's correct. And we're talking about now, though, we're talking about in the 1910s. Yeah, 1910s, yeah. 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Ch- Charles Drew, the uh, doctor and mm-hmm. founder of blood plasma went to Dunbar before going to Amherst. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of quite a few uh, esteemed people like William Hasty, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that went to Dunbar. Yeah, uh, Rayford Logan went to Dunbar. Yeah, the, the, the historian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, he introduced the game of basketball there, and then he was instrumental in uh, uh, creating the Eastern Board of Officials, 
which you know you had all of these officials up and down the eastern uh, seaboard, the black officials. I mean the official, the, the the game officials. Game officials. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he he established that, and uh, he also was one of the key people that helped to establish in 1912. The Colored Intercollegiate Athletic Association. This is what we were talking about before. This is the beginning of the Black Athletic Conference. That's right. Because yeah. he was instrumental in talking to a lot of the athletic directors and administrators mm-hmm. at the founding schools mm-hmm. of the CIAA. And he told them basically how to form this conference. And then from the CIAA, you had the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, you had the SWAC. So Which all, exists, of course, to this day. I mean, right. the SWAC must be one of the oldest yeah. uh, conferences. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I think the uh, after the CIAA... The CIAA, CIAA the, obviously, is the oldest, yeah. You, then you have the Southern SIAC, which is mm-hmm. Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Then, then you have the yeah. SWAC. And so, was the MEAC dates from the 70s, Well, the MEAC is the 70s. Yes, and yeah, the yeah. came about because... And the MEAC is the, is, the, is, the, is the conference that Howard University yes, is in. And now, <laughs> yes, and, and also the bottom schools yeah. in the MEAC, uh, well, some of them, like Florida A&M and, mm-hmm. and South Carolina State, were in the SIAC, but most of those uh, schools in the MEAC are former S, uh, CIAA schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, he was intermittent instrumental in helping them form that. But let me just jump in for a second because I think at a certain point we need to talk about Jim Crow. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, I mean, that's the reason why we're talking about separate conferences mm-hmm. for the black mm-hmm. colleges. Well, for a black college having separate black colleges. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> that's it. So he had to uh, create an athletic infrastructure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a period of vicious racism. Of course. Um, in, in case, you're, we, you know, we, we haven't mentioned it, and we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the backdrop to what he was doing here. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, and that the whole basis of these as universities being established was because, you know, in a, in a, in a state like Tennessee, where you have uh, the University of Tennessee, where you have Tennessee State University, and the white people at that particular time were saying, well, we'll give money, give you all the money as long as you black people don't try to integrate our schools. And this would be at the University of South Carolina, mm-hmm. South Carolina State, a lot of the schools in uh, the state of Georgia, uh, Alabama, where you had Alabama State, you had uh, Tuskegee, and what have you. So separate, I guess separate but equal. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they may not have started out equal, but black people made it equal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but I am curious also, I mean, his, his, his fingerprints seem to be on everything mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of uh, black athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, I think I, I, I read a, a, a little bit about the need to create their own officials because mm-hmm. white officials were being used yes. for some of the early athletic yes. contracts. Yes, yeah. And, and it's interesting to note when he did a, a series of articles for the Baltimore African American, right at the time that uh, he, before his retirement in 1954, and uh, he talked about the fact that the white officials were uh, didn't care, you mm-hmm. know that uh, you know they let the players kill each other in early games of football. They let the guys fight and they did stuff the other because they didn't really care. So mm-hmm. he saw a need to have black officials and teach them about officiating and that type of so mm-hmm. they created that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and the same with the conferences. He knew that they needed a conference, whether CIAA was the first, and then a lot of schools followed afterwards mm-hmm. to create the schools in the deep south, like SIAC and the SWAC. They used the basic uh, components of the CIAA. Yeah. Um, uh, we also have to talk about the publication of The Negro in Sports. That's right. And this was done in collaborations with another pioneering name mm-hmm. uh, in uh, African-American uh, academia, mm-hmm. uh, Carter Woodson. That's right. Well, Carter Woodson approached Dr. Henderson in the early 1940s, uh, knowing that he was at the forefront of establishing these con- uh, conferences and establishing the Eastern Board of Officials. And he suggested that they needed, African-Americans were now at these, a lot of the major colleges and universities also. So he suggested to Dr. Henderson to write about the Negro in sports. And it's so funny, when he first came out with the first edition in the early 40s, uh, my father said that when you could go to the library, people kept, at Icy Norcom, that people kept stealing it. <laughs> that you know, you, you know. I mean, you would go there, and then it would be in the library because you have to understand because of segregation, they weren't allowed. African Americans weren't allowed to use the city library. Mm-hmm. So in downtown Portsmouth, so he said whenever he would go to the library at Icy Norcom, he might see the book there. It might be two weeks there. And then it would be gone. Mm-hmm. And so the librarian or the teacher that was in charge of it would have to uh, contact Associated Publishers, which was mm-hmm. Carter Woodson's uh, publishing mm-hmm. company, which he operated, I think, on uh, 12th Street. And it's a historic landmark right mm-hmm. now. And that's where everything that the Associated Publishers published, they would have to contact mm-hmm. Associated Publishers. And they would be sent another copy and it wouldn't be there for maybe about a month and it'd be gone again. It was in hot property. But this was the first documentation of uh, African-American athletic participation. Well, um, uh, the both of you are picking up where he left off. Uh, this uh, This volume is certainly in that tradition. And for our listeners out there, I think what we've tried to do here is to give you a little taste of what's to come. Uh, we're going to look back so that we can go forward. Uh, so that that's our program for today. Um, we're going to be doing this twice a month, so, so stay tuned. And we want to thank you for listening to the inaugural program of the Sierra Athletics Media Podcast. Thanks to Francis and Charles. I'm Calvin, and uh, we'll be back with another show very shortly. Thank you, Calvin. All right. Thank you, Calvin.